Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. One of the most interesting and important areas of study that I went through in my health coaching programs was how socioeconomic disparities affected overall health and wellness. Social determinants of health are non-medical factors that influence health outcomes. Think of healthcare access and quality, economic stability, neighborhood and built environments such as parks, community fitness centers, and access to nutritious foods. Many of us don't have to think about these things because we live in well-established communities, have access to multiple grocery stores, and have opportunities to safely exercise at parks, hike on trails, and work out at community gyms. Social determinants of health affect not just our neighbors in the United States, but globally. Because my passion is serving midlife women, I'm going to focus on the health disparities among women in this episode. It's an important discussion to have. I've invited a very special guest onto the podcast to help share his expertise and knowledge on prioritizing global and national efforts to make sure that all humankind have access to opportunities that lead to positive health outcomes. Dr. Bernard Tony Jr. is a former White House medical officer and global and public health professional who has developed medical plans, infectious disease mitigation strategies, and public health preparedness at the highest level of government. During his service in the White House Medical Unit, he conducted 84 domestic and five overseas missions in support of the president and vice president. He assessed hospital systems and witnessed the social determinants of health that led to health disparities and inequalities in the United States and worldwide. He is passionate about clinical medicine, research, education, and working with internal and external stakeholders to advance initiatives to improve global health security. Since May 2022, Dr. Tony has been with the NIH, the National Institute for Health, full-time as an associate investigator. He is a decorated Army combat veteran who served three tours in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom and has earned numerous awards, medals, and honors. It's a very long list. Little medical disclaimer before we jump in. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, Open your minds and let's dive in with Dr. Tony. Hi, Bernard. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. I am so excited to have you here today. Thank you for having me. So you have a very interesting story um, on how you have become the man that you are today. And I was hoping before we dive into the, the podcast topic that you could share a little bit about your background. Uh, thank you for, for having me, number one. Um, and I'll go ahead and sort of give a, a brief synopsis of, of who I am and where I, where I come from. 
Um, I am a 21 year now veteran of the United States Army. Um, I started in the Army at 17 uh, out of Atlanta, Georgia in some pretty distressing circumstances. Um, those circumstances were living in a socioeconomically deprived uh, neighborhood of Atlanta, Georgia, in which um, I was exposed to a lot of violence and crime. And on the on the precipice of me joining the military, I was a victim of a drive-by shooting. And so my, my good friend, uh, Ivan Gray, passed away in that shooting. Uh, and that was uh, just three weeks before I joined the military. And that led me to this uh, idea of wanting to go into medicine because at the, at the moment I was not able to really do anything for him and that left me hopeless. And so um, I was already committed to joining the army as a Russian linguist. Uh, I went on and did that for a few years and I transitioned quickly into medicine after working in third special forces group out of Fort Liberty now, it used to be called Fort Bragg. Um, and I did that for at least the linguistic side of, of, the, of the house. I did Russian and French. I did that for about seven years became an officer, and then I went on to, uh, to PA school and uh, became a doctorally prepared PA and did a lot of other things uh, in public health, global health, um, practicing in primary care in many settings um, with a capstone assignment at the White House Medical Unit where I served between the years of 2018 and 2022. That's very cool. How was that experience at the White House for you, taking care of such high level um, people? Well, I'll say that, you know, it, everything seems enamoring from the from the outside. Mm -hmm. It became just, you know, more of a, just a job like anyone else would have a job. I, you know, I certainly loved um, what I did. Uh, I also worked in, in the White House in some very trying times, a lot of the social uh, and racial unrest uh, during COVID, yeah. um, just a lot of different aspects of, uh, of life that impacted everyone globally. Um, and it, and it, re it resonated very deeply at the White House Medical Unit, where I served for almost four years. Yep, I could imagine. So today we're here to talk about one of your passions is um, social determinants of health and how it affects the health of people, not just nationwide, but globally. And I like to focus on midlife women's health. So we're sort of going to tie those two together. And I, I recently came across while I was researching um, information for this podcast in preparation with you, I came across an alarming yet not surprising um, statistic by the Harris Poll from May 2023, stating that 70% of Americans are dissatisfied with their current healthcare system. And some of the findings were 56% wait more than a week for an appointment to be scheduled. 53% of Latinos have skipped the last two years seeking health care, and U.S. adults spend eight hours a month coordinating care for themselves or a family member. I know for myself, I have private insurance, and I know that making certain appointments for myself is certainly labor intensive. So I can't even imagine how it is for people who are in more socioeconomic diverse um, communities. What is your take on this statistic of all these Americans feeling so discouraged by our healthcare system? It, thank you for the question. I think that it brings up some very interesting points. And this is a very complex um, problem set that we have here in the United States. Um, I've talked to many leaders uh, within our United States government to include senators um, that have struggled with this notion of how do we improve our healthcare system. The, the, the challenge is we don't have a single healthcare system. We have a healthcare system for the elderly, which is Medicare. We have a healthcare system for the people who are socioeconomically deprived, which is Medicaid. Um, we have people who have more socialized type of medicine who worked in, in, in the military. And that's the healthcare system that I was in for quite some time, the 
US military healthcare system and the VA. And then we have uh, folks like yourself who have private insurance, which is another healthcare insurance if you have employer-based insurance. And then those circles that I just mentioned are not concentric. So people fall throughout the, fall, fall through the gaps. Um, the challenge that we have is we have all these very disparate healthcare systems um, that don't really speak well and work together very well. And then you have a very high administrative burden in our healthcare system that costs a lot of money. We spend upwards of 16% of our GDP um, on healthcare costs, but we, we have some of the worst health, health, health outcomes for many of the developed nations. Yeah. Um, the challenges are, are they're varied. Uh, there are multiple variables that go into this. Um, but I think one of the things that I focus on, on the social economic side, the people who are marginalized, is how do we bring them up to a level at which um, they can at least get the basic health care services that they need? And to your point, um, just making an appointment can be cumbersome. I, you know, I have a lot of ideas on how we can improve many of those different uh, aspects of it. But by and large, we need a, a universal health care system. Um, I like to point to some of the Nordic states, Finland. Um, mm. which is, again, not much like the United States uh, is, is not as comparing apples and oranges, but they have one electronic medical record system. You know, wouldn't that be right. nice if you moved from Chicago to Los Angeles and you still had access to all of your healthcare records, labs and things like that. And so I think we need to find a way to interconnect the electronic medical records that we mm -hmm. have in the United States. We need to figure out a way to create a more universal health solution, uh, health-based uh, solution as far as insurance and the healthcare system. And we need to uh, leverage technology. Um, one of the reasons why it's so difficult for you know, uh, many of the providers that are delivering that care is because we're also burdened with the administrative burdens that you uh, deal with. Uh, Note-taking, writing these cumbersome notes, um, all of the administrative aspects of the job, at least to burnout, at least on the provider side. And I think that the patients are feeling that uh, on their side as well. The uh, the the lack of um, efficacy and the and the decreased satisfaction with the way we deliver healthcare in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. It is quite the burden for everybody. And right now, there is a surge in women's health awareness, and women have mostly been. Um, not well represented in terms of the gold standard of clinical trials. And I know that that is being changed by a lot of um, women physicians right now who are working very hard to change that number. And the, when we talk about the four chronic disease states for all people, it's Alzheimer's and dementia risk, cancer, type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease risk. And I wanna to pivot to midlife women's health and how social disparities affect the health outcomes in relation to these four chronic states. Um, let's begin with the social determinants of health care in terms of just breast cancer alone. I know that screening is challenging for many people. And right now there's a push for not just having mammograms, but also to have ultrasounds. And how have you seen this affected or um, not really working well in communities that are more challenged in terms of getting the basic healthcare that they need? Yeah, I'll, I'll use Washington, D.C. as a use case. Um, and this is a great question with respect to women in that intersection of uh, these social determinants of health. And, and just to be clear for anyone who don't know what that, that term is, it's, it's a public health term that we use, but it's basically where you live, where you work, where you play, where you're educated, where you learn. Those are the things that have 
these non-healthcare related uh, you know, origins, but they're directly tied into your health. Um, you know, it, it, for many people, I'll use, uh, again, Washington, D.C. as a use case. Uh, in Ward 7 and 8, um, the, the district is divided into eight wards. Ward 7 and 8 is the most socioeconomically disadvantaged portion of the city. Um, they don't have a lot of access to uh, health care providers. And so uh, that is a challenge because if you look at, you know, you named off some of the chronic disease states, but even maternal mortality, um, yeah. th those two wards don't have access to maternal health wards. So they have to figure out some sort of way um, to get to the other side of the district to get to adequate care. That's oftentimes untenable, you know, and so access to knowledgeable providers that are able to uh, to bring in some of the newer knowledge with respect to mammograms and breast cancer screening, to your point, you know, many women may have a lot of breast tissue and it may be more amenable to starting off with an ultrasound or even an MRI and then leading over to a mammogram to do some more targeted evaluation. Um, but that requires health insurance in many cases. And so a lot of these uh, women don't have the adequate health insurance that will provide the reimbursement for such studies. Um, and a lot of times they don't have health insurance at all. And so that's, you know, going back to our original discussion point of having adequate health insurance coverage for all um, is going to be one of, the, one of the rate limiting steps. Uh, education from a public health perspective yeah. with respect to breast cancer, knowing when and how to perform your own self uh, breast evaluations, you know, knowing how to do that monthly, what to look for, when, when you should see a provider. Those things are not oftentimes taught, you know, at a very young age. And so uh, when we find out that a lot of these women have some sort of malignancy, it's a late stage diagnosis. And so that early education on self-breast examination is very fundamental. And that's something that we definitely have to focus on. Um, and then, you know, medication costs, you know, or the cost of healthcare in general, even with insurance, um, if, if your deductibles and co-pays and co-insurance and the cost of your medications are so cumbersome that you can't pay it. And that's one of the reasons why you have a barrier to the healthcare system because you choose not to seek care. That's another obstacle that we have to address. You know, just having coverage in and of itself does not mean that we're going to increase uh, access and utilization. So what are some of the things that we can do in these communities, um, also including rural communities where, uh, you know, at least the communities you're talking about, they're in these big cities, which is unbelievable that they can't get access to healthcare because it's right around them. It's in their, it's the next neighborhood over. Uh, I used to live there, so I know how the, that setup is, right. but what about rural America? You know, they also don't have access to healthcare and the education component. Um, what are you seeing there? Yeah, you know, I, I love the uh, the macro perspective. I like to look at system drivers uh, for a lot of things, and I think that we need to do a lot more to reach those communities that, for you know, for many people, feel are unreachable. Uh, I think COVID nineteen uh, accelerated the use of telehealth, 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 yeah. telemedicine. Mm -hmm. I think that is an element of being able to reach those communities. Um, and, and there's ways that we can drive more access to that. I know that broadband access is still an issue in some rural communities. Um, 
but that's one way that we could, you know, definitely bring those patients into the fold and get them the preventative health care evaluation and services that they need, telehealth and tele telemedicine. I don't think that's the, the end all to be all, though. I think we need to have other policy issues that are um, that are implemented both at the national and the state level to be able to bring access to care to more people. Um, and it's going to take a vulnerability risk assessment to see where those gaps are. COVID was definitely a great example of seeing where, um, you know, where those marginalized populations may live, why we were not able to reach them with respect to evaluations and testing and things like that. We can use a lot of that same data um, to superimpose, you know, where are the risks and gaps as far as women's health, breast cancer screening and the like. And so I think what we need to start is with uh, good data, um, being able to drive our decision-making and also looking at very novel ways and, and new ways to be able to bring healthcare solutions to those women. Absolutely. And then talking about Alzheimer's and dementia risk, we run into the same, and we this this conversation could be copied for each of these four horsemen of chronic disease states, right? Alzheimer's and dementia, we know that the risk of that is increased with people that are living in socioeconomic challenge communities. They have more stressful jobs, less sleep. Sleep is now, I believe, um, I forget what the list is called, but one of the essential aids for cardiovascular disease risk. Um, they've added sleep in the last possible year, maybe a couple years. It wasn't on there before. And now there's so much research around sleep quality. And sometimes you could have a family of 10 people living in a home that has one bedroom. And so mm -hmm. how do people get the amount of sleep that they need? How do they create that bedtime routine and, mm -hmm. and, and create that space for them so that they can lower the risk for chronic disease? Yeah, these, these are very uh, loaded and interesting questions. Um, I, you know, I look at when we talk about Alzheimer's disease, you know, we know that there's a genetic predisposition. We know yeah. the APOE gene is, is what's implicated, uh, but not many people know um, uh -huh. their genetic predisposition. Um, and even if they did know, a lot of times they don't know what to do with that information. So I think what we need to do is we need to figure out a way to, again, going back to that healthcare insurance coverage, figuring out a way that we can you know, um, evaluate people with genetic counseling and genetic screening so that it's not a cost burden on the patient. That's number one. But just because you have that predisposition doesn't mean that you're going to develop the disease. And I'm, I'm pretty right. sure you know that very well as a coach. And so many of the same things that we will recommend um, with or without the predisposition are the same. Making sure that you have a good psychological environment, that you, you know, if you work in a in an environment that's not necessarily stimulating from an intellectual standpoint, and you don't have enough cognitive resilience, trying to figure out ways from a preventative medicine standpoint that we can bring those solutions to people. And that's a confluence between not just the healthcare system, but also your employers as well and community-based actors and stakeholders. Um, stress and you know, anxiety, those are other drivers of you know, maybe increasing the risk of Alzheimer's disease. So looking at different ways at the community level that we can have more community level involvement, um, support groups, um, I like to, you know, hearken on digital resources, but I understand that not everyone's facile with digital resources, but even if we start in the digital space and that's what leads people to more in-person uh, types of group settings, I think that's something that we can definitely leverage, especially when we're dealing with people who are aging or even just in their midlife years. That's a great segue to um, an interesting study I came across um, yesterday in 2019, there was a pilot trial. It was called the Faith App Pilot Study. And 
Do you know this one? It was funded by the NIH um, and the American Heart Association. And it was an app that a doctor and a community-based uh, leader created for this community. They were African-Americans mm -hmm. and how they were so... Um, involved in faith and religion and spirituality and how that prompted them to create this app that would help people reduce their risk for cardiovascular disease because the app was very health-based. So mm. because everybody pretty much has a cell phone mm -hmm. and people wanted to have more access um, in the community to information quicker. And so this app was created. Uh, I think the doctor came from the Mayo um, Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. And I think she started out at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, and it has it's been having great success. And now they are going to open up the app to not just this one community in um, Minnesota, but now on a national basis to people in socioeconomic challenged areas mm -hmm. to connect with this app, learn about smoking cessation, learn about mm -hmm. healthy eating habits, learning about sleep, stress management, and the importance of community. And the whole um, pilot started because this community member saw that it's part of their church mm -hmm. in the community. That is what brought people together mm -hmm. to help each other, support each other on their own health journeys. Absolutely. There have been a number, I appreciate you making that nexus between uh, community and health. There have been a number of different studies in the past that have used uh, church-based interventions to be able to, A, have a target audience of, of people that you know are going to meet regularly, but B, that they trust. So uh, a lot of these things that happen in the healthcare system, at least for a lot of marginalized populations, they don't trust the healthcare system. We certainly saw that in, in COVID as well. Um, so the community uh, sort of centric focus, much you know, in the case of churches as a use case, uh, is an excellent way to be able to get a group of people that may be at a higher level of risk uh, for a number of different reasons, but also um, that they're getting information from what they deem as a trusted source. And that is invaluable when we're talking about delivering interventions, because I can sit here and give you a lot of data and I can tell you what you need to do and how to do it. But, you know, if I'm not a, if I'm not a trusted source uh, for okay. any number of different reasons, maybe, you know, whether I have a D or R behind my name or where I come from in the country or whatever it is, um, I may, there may be a barrier to delivering that, that information to, um, to people who need the information. And so that's the reason why we need to have credible messengers. And if those credible messengers are coming from a community um, where they have trusted leaders, those trusted leaders can then be um, the, the stakeholders that will be able to drive change. It's hard to do that at a national level um, because every community is so different and mm -hmm. what those credible messengers look like are very different. But the concept remains the same that oftentimes we need a bottom up, uh, you know, sort of framework to complement the system level drivers at the macro perspective and the policy level. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, they were saying the community community leader was saying how it took them 18 months to uh, vet out this doctor because <laughs> nobody trusted her. And she was with the Mayo and the Mayo Clinic, and they had all these disillusioned um, ideas about it in 18 months. And finally, she's become a trusted authority and she listened to the community. They said, our community isn't uh, the Johns Hopkins community. This is the Minnesota community. We're very different. And so this doctor was able mm -hmm. to ask all of these community members, what is your why on health? 
What do mm-hmm. you need and what is your why? Because like what you're saying, the needs and the whys are different across the board. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, you know, I, again, I just, I remind myself of, you know, being a soldier, you know, and again, this is completely disparate, but I'll tie it in. Being a soldier in a foreign country such as Afghanistan, when the purpose was to deliver, you know, health, health-based solutions as a global health engagement, just wearing the uniform was a barrier, right? Even if my yeah. intentions were completely different um, and I had, you know, I didn't have a rifle, I had medications, just wearing that uniform was completely different. And so um, that's the reason why we have to really evaluate our communities and look at things from what we call an emic approach. That means that we're working with the communities themselves as opposed to coming to the communities from an edict approach. Um, and trying to deliver healthcare solutions without having that that value-based trust system um, that we're poor with the people who need uh, those interventions. Absolutely. So with, let's talk about cardiovascular disease since we're still on that subject. In terms of midlife women, when midlife women go through the transition of menopause, <clears throat> that door to our cardiovascular disease risk opens up and increases because our estrogen is going down and estrogen is heart protective. And there was way back in the early 2000s, I'm sure you know all about it, the WHI study, the Women's Health Initiative, which is sort of hitting the news um, pretty hardcore right now. And a lot of the findings are being rebunked and reversed. And women, again, can go to their physicians and have a more educated, informative discussion about menopause, menopause hormone therapy, and how to make that choice. So with the risk of cardiovascular disease rising, when you go through menopause, and we have all these midlife women in socioeconomic challenged communities, what are some of the preventive things that are going on now to help educate those women? Or is it just non-existent? And then what can we do? I think it's somewhere in between. I don't think that is non-existent, but I don't think that we're operating at the optimal level to be able to um, reach as many people as we possibly can. I think just to your point, a lot of these um, these elements of, uh, of risk uh, are the same for people who are in socioeconomically deprived areas. And a lot of times that runs also along racial lines. Um, I think what we need to do is um, again, start to evaluate where where the issues are. And there's been a number of studies, um, at least uh, I can speak to one that's in Washington, D.C., where it broke up the district, which is not very large, by zip code. And, uh, and by zip code, you can see the life expectancy. And sometimes just by a couple of miles, four to five miles, um, there's a decrease in life expectancy by about 10 years. That's significant. Yeah. And so what, what drives that level of decrease in life expectancy? And to your point, cardiovascular disease is one of the number one reasons of cause of death in the United States. Um, it, it takes a lot of different things. I think, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, risk factors that are at, at interplay here. We have people who live in, you know, I'm thinking of all the times that I've talked to women because I started in women's health in primary care back in 2014. You know, and I would tell them the recommendations to exercise for 150 minutes, you know, at least, you know, three, three times a week. Um, I would tell them to eat a heart healthy diet if they were at risk. And we would kind of go through all of those things. Uh, but, you know, as a early, early in my career as a young provider, I didn't take the time to understand that, wait a minute, if I'm telling them to exercise for 150 minutes a week, where are they actually going to do that? If they live in right. an unsafe they live in an unsafe neighborhood and they don't have access to gyms and things like that that we have access to. Where does that happen um, if they don't have parks and or if the 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 air that they're 
you know, exercising is polluted. All of those things are, are drivers of why a person wouldn't exercise. So my recommendations fall flat. The same with heart healthy diet um, and eating a healthy diet. We know the obesity is rising significantly in the United States. Um, and that oftentimes includes women um, that are middle age as our yeah. metabolism slow down and things like that. But if I make the recommendation to eat healthy foods, but you live in a food desert, you know, um, and, and you don't have the transportation, let's say, to get to um, to a healthy food source or a grocery store that doesn't, you know, try to sell unhealthy foods. All of these things speak to policy level decisions that we need to work from the top and start to drive these things down. Uh, you're right. The estrogen is cardioprotective, and it is one of those things that women uniquely experience. But they're also experiencing all these other traditional risk factors that we have to address as well. And I think all of those things have to be um, considered in the equation when we're trying to improve the lives of others. And the way that I say uh, that that's done is, is, is with your vote. You know, um, I'm not a politician, but I'll say to be informed on who, who you're electing to lead you at the local, state, and national level, because their interests are, um, you know, sometimes in conflict with the interests of, the, of their constituents. And so I think we need to be, um, you know, using our, our voice in many ways to have an active participation in the political uh, sphere to be able to drive some of these policy level changes that are health focused in a meaningful way. If someone is listening to this podcast right now and wanting to become more involved further than just voting, mm -hmm. what else is available for people to do in order to support these changes on a local community level? Right. I would say that there's a lot of different nonprofits in every different city um, that are working, community-based organizations that are working um, to address any number of uh, these social determinants of health. And again, that's not a uh, you know all-covering solution for for many right. people. But if you if you see um, that things are not being done, oftentimes what we need is leaders. We need leaders to step up and identify the the unique challenges within your community. Um, and, and start working to do things about it. Um, I can point to a lot of different organizations in the DC and Baltimore area that are working on very vertical uh, programs to address very specific um, health-related challenges. Um, but if, if those don't exist in your communities, then I think it takes active involvement to, to start working on those and, and building um, you know, a guiding coalition in a way that's cross-sectoral, right? So like we can make health-based solutions and, and talk about public health, but if we're not including the education sector, um, then a lot of times we're not getting that, that information to the students where they need it, you know, most readily as they grow. So uh, being involved in, uh, in your communities at every different level um, is going to be very, very key. A lot of these top-down solutions will take years, if not decades, to make an impact. Uh, but the most agile and the quickest solutions that anyone can make would be at the community level. And that's being involved in any number of different groups, um, do, you know, surveying what, what's available as far as resources within your specific community. I mean, when you don't see those resources available, start to petition in the right places to vector in those resources to drive change. As far as uh, informational align, there's always, I mean, we live in a technology age. Um, so uh, a lot of the recommendations that I would present will come from the CDC and they have a lot of very um, tailored type of solutions that you know communities and individuals can use. But there's also your public health departments um, that work within your within your cities as well that can help you with the messaging, that can help you with identifying the resources to be able to drive that change. And that exists nearly in every community in the United States. 
Absolutely. We all have to be involved and help our neighbors. Number one, how do you see the healthcare system in and what's going on with midlife women in the United States um, compared to other communities outside of our country? Are there any ones that are doing it right? Uh, there's got to be I'm, someone I'm, doing a better job. <laughs> right. Um, yes, yes, and yes. Um, but no country has it quite right. Um, I, I will tell you, um, I'll use my own family as an example. Um, in South Korea, my, my wife is South Korean, um, and they have a very good way of enabling um, women to, uh, to, to give birth to, to children and, and being able to, you know, to, to pay them um, some sort of compensation after they have children and, and maternal leave and family leave and things like that, specific to women in, uh, in their middle ages. A lot of the European states, they do a lot of things very, very well. But, you know, I, I say that with a with the air of caution, because these countries are so, so, so different. Um, I'll use, um, you know, France as an example. I'm enamored by their healthcare system. Yeah. Um, but they also have a, a smaller geographic area to cover. Um, they have and oftentimes more a higher physician to population ratio. Um, and they are, you know, in many different ways, more accepting of a higher tax burden to be able to cover the general population for primary care and preventative medicine and things like that. So I think what we have to do is, you know, is not really modeling our healthcare system off of another country because the United States is very unique in that way. But I think we need to have a, a bigger discussion on where our dollars are going. You know, as I pay taxes, I have no idea where my federal tax tax dollars are going. Um, and I think we need to figure out a better way to allocate those monies appropriately because here in the United States, we have a, a, a system of sick care. We don't have health care. Yeah. We have a system of sick care. We, right. we, and that's where the model goes from medical school or any type of you know, pre-service education all the way up. Um, there's not a lot of investment in public health and preventative medicine. And so we need to figure out ways to shift that paradigm, you know, in the, our education system, but also in the way our policymakers allocate their programmatic funding. And I would say that we need to focus on, on healthcare because let's be clear, it's, it's impacting all of us. Even if it's just in higher insurance costs, we're being pulled um, with people who have a higher disease burden. And so our insurance costs um, increase as well. So I think what we need to do is we need to have a paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift also comes with a different way of thinking, even for the average American about what we're willing to pay for. I also think that that paradigm shift includes health coaches like myself. In the world of functional and integrative medicine, they're bringing in health coaches into their clinics, into their practices, um, using telemed, telehealth um, as an advantage, a benefit to their clients and their patients. But the conventional healthcare system is still resistant by using us since we're not licensed like a nutritionist or a dietitian. We are, um, I'm a national board certified health and wellness coach. So I have the highest of um, testing and skills of any health coach. And we are growing that community globally. But I do see the resistance still from um, the conventional healthcare space. 
with my, with my clients, when my clients want me to speak to their mm -hmm. doctor so that we're all on the same page, which is another thing that's uh, going wrong in this country. Everybody has a doctor for every organ or mm -hmm. every system in the body. And nobody's talking to each other because they assume that the, the, the entire body is made up of separate systems when it, of course we know that it's a whole. Mm -hmm. So I think bringing in health coaches into the healthcare, the conventional healthcare model is going to be instrumental um, down the road. And we have some amazing people like one of my mentors, Dr. Sandra Scheinbaum, who started the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy, mm -hmm. who is um, very well known in those circles and doing so much good work for all of us health coaches to bridge that gap between a medical diagnosis and the real world. How can you walk out of a doctor's office after meeting someone for seven to 15 minutes with a diagnosis and then put it to work in your real life, whose everyone's equation is different. You know, you, uh, you gave us more time than, uh, than we really have seven to 15 minutes. I would say it's probably <laughs> closer, closer to seven. Okay. Um, let, let's be clear. Uh, the primary care appointment is usually about 20 minutes and, and the nursing and evaluation and vital signs that takes about 10 minutes. Um, if the patient's late, you lose uh, even less time. So, or even more time rather. Um, I think you're right. I, I've seen this, not to say that health coaches are um, completely comparable to, let's say, doulas, but the analogy is the same. Um, when we look at people who are able to, um, not that they're clinicians, but they're able to help people in a very pivotal role to be able to provide um, uh, information, to be able to help patients navigate the healthcare system, um, to be, uh, you know, uh, force multipliers for those medical providers and doctors that are delivering a care, um, facilitating communication, if you will, even between the patient and healthcare providers. Where the challenge uh, lies is, is in the regulatory system. So um, how do we reimburse for that? Because we would love to be able to, you know, it would only make sense for the healthcare system to reimburse for uh, for coaches and, you know, for people who are not able to afford their own coaches. Um, maybe they live in a marginalized uh, population or socioeconomically deprived, but they, they need and want a health coach. We need to have a system that's, you know, a novel way to be able to provide reimbursement for that. Um, the healthcare system has tried to do some of that with patient-centered medical homes where there would be a, like a nursing educator who would be able to see the patient after a patient received, let's say, a diagnosis of high blood pressure or high cholesterol. The provider may give them some cursory information, answer their questions, prescribe a, a pill, um, and then that patient would then go and see the nurse who would elaborate more on you know, the lifestyle changes and things mm -hmm. like that. But there's a paucity of that model in the United States. Um, the healthcare system is overburdened and strained, and most people don't have access to that. So you're right. I think a health coach um, is definitely a, a viable option for being able to deliver, you know, some of that more uh, comprehensive uh, medical care to be able to tie in all the pieces of the healthcare system, if you will. Um, it's just, you know, I think the reimbursement of it is going to be a challenge. And the other thing is, you know, standardizing and regulating the quality. I'm pretty sure that you're of the the highest pedigree, if you will. But then, how do we measure that? You know, for people who may not have your same skill set, background, and expertise. And so, the challenge I think for uh, for us is how do we think through that? But to your point, I think we need to think through it. I think we need to look at all of the enablers um, of the healthcare system because, again, I, I want to pivot from a sick care system to a healthcare system. 
Yeah. Well, we are working on getting codes for health insurance to pay for health coaches. So that is in the works. I think we're probably a few years away still, That's great. Um, but it is in the pipeline for sure. Um, Bernard, thank you so much for all your time today. It was such a pleasure to have you here. I haven't done a podcast like this ever. So this is very unique to my community and eye-opening and just helps us think about our own health. You know, the struggles that we're all having, everybody is having struggles, whether you live in a multi-million dollar home or a one bedroom or a studio apartment with 10 people, you know, we all have our own struggles and pivoting to make lifestyle changes are always going to be a challenge. So we all have to help take care of each other and, and be empathetic towards each other and, and those, um, those disparities. Where can people find you on social media? I know I follow you on LinkedIn and you put up some amazing information. It is true, educational, informational, loving. It's all of it, right? It's um, so where else can people find you if they're not on LinkedIn? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I only have LinkedIn after oh, okay. so many years in the government and with the top secret security clearance and working at the White House, I very I had a very slim uh, social media presence um, and profile. Um, so now I, I primarily only use LinkedIn, um, but uh, but that's where you can find me. Um, no one needs to you know to request me as a friend. I mean, my profile is open. You can follow me, um, and uh, and that's that's what works best for me. But I'm you know I'm always on different podcasts, and uh, if you just Google my name, you'll see other things that I've talked about in the past. But for a centralized point. Um, um, LinkedIn is where I spend most of my time. Is there anything else that you want to share before we end our podcast? No, I just want to say thank you for having me. I think again, um, as we collectively, you know, if if one population or one small subset of any uh, group is is disadvantaged or marginalized, then we all uh, have a responsibility to help Absolutely. one another. And so I think that if we can look at uh, life through that lens, if we can look at ways to help our neighbors, um, which is you know one of the you know values that I that I point to most readily in my work in my daily life and I think we'll all be better because of it so um, I would love to lock arms with anyone who would love to to do that type of work and I also uh, am the board chair of Stepping Stones for Global Development which works on international solutions and transfer of skills I mean capacity building for very weak healthcare systems around the world so that's another uh, way to reach out to me if that's an area of interest as well. Oh we're in so how can people find that? Stepping Stones for Global Development, um, SSGD. Um, you can just type that into Google and our nonprofit will show up. We just most recently uh, came back from Ecuador and I was just advising the country of Ecuador um, this week on some public health initiatives as they're uh, dealing with climate change and the impacts of El Nino. So um, again, kind of working across the entire world in that way. Um, but again, LinkedIn is where to find me on individual levels and and I'm willing to work with anyone um, if we have uh, an area of interest that we have a mutual supporting agenda. Wonderful. I will list all of that in our show pro, uh, notes so that people can find you and follow you. Thank you again so much for your generous time and talking about this delicate conversation, this delicate topic for everybody. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.